you want to be on your deathbed thinking that you've given the best chance at, at everything, mm-hmm. at achieving as much as you could have achieved without much regret. But here, here, and now. And now. Okay, so this is our second interview episode on the Here and Now podcast, and I have with me a guest who's a friend of mine, and he actually introduced me to the book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep by Mark Manson. I think of him as a bit of a life expert in many ways. He's a professional pilot, a personal trainer, and he's owned his own business and has uh, some interesting thoughts on finding happiness in life, seeking balance, and uh, optimizing health. So, Wesley Reed, welcome to the Here and Now podcast. Thanks for having me on. And I wonder if we've got to get over this right here and now and start saying the F word. <laughs> because this is going to be a bit awkward if we don't if we don't say right yeah, but now. We're going to use the word fuck all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I know. But unfortunately, um, some of my family has started listening uh, to it. <laughs> it's embarrassing. And perhaps your your kids might um, no. get on the computer and, and, and have a listen, play around in, the, in, in a couple of years' time. We can touch on your background more as we go along. But I gave you a few questions in advance. And um, I know you've put a bit of thought into preparing some reasoned answers to those. So we'll just work our way through them and uh, see where the conversation goes. So as I said, you introduced me to the book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which touches on a uh, a fairly sort of stoic sort of philosophy about how to uh, not overthink life, really. So can you give me some of your impressions and the takeaways that you found from the book to get us started? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, I guess stoicism is... uh a good way to summarize the book. It's uh, been some time since I actually read it. And I must say, uh, between then and now, uh, Mark Manson has uh, written a second book. And uh, I've been not only through that book and uh, and, and others, but um, certainly from that first book, there's a lot of standout themes. And um, a lot, of, a lot of held strongly in my mind. I've recommended the book to many other people and they've enjoyed it much like yourself. Mm-hmm. I think it's a consolidation of philosophy and psychology uh, from the last couple of millennia. It really um, puts a bit of a, a uh, it douses out the, the positive psychology uh, movement a little of, of the mm-hmm. last 10 or 20 years. Yep. And... Um, with a few funny stories in there, it's got three or four central themes, I think. Um, first of all, he basically, uh, Manson goes through uh, the fact that we're not, we're not entirely special, um, which, which is important in that we often think that our problems are unique to ourselves, especially uh, when bad things happen to us. We, we wonder, why me? Mm-hmm. But... Um, he, he actually shines a different light on that by saying, look, don't ever think that you're special, not necessarily in that positive way, but in, in, on, in the bad things in life, in that mm. most individuals have problems in their lives and you shouldn't ever think that, that you're alone in your issues and your problems and therefore take solace in the fact that there are many other people going through what you go through and it's actually a normal part of life and uh, we should accept 
in our lives that we have issues, problems, negativity, uh, essentially, to be cliche, shit happens. Mm. Uh, and I know you've been through this in some of your previous podcasts, which is very, very relevant. Mm. Um, another one is that uh, we should choose our, um, what well, choose our fucks, I'm going to say, uh, using that F word. Mm. Essentially, we only have a, a certain amount of uh, fucks to give is the way that he puts it in his book. So we've got to choose them wisely. I think this reflects our natural uh, capacity um, to become overloaded, uh, task saturation, stress, anxiety. There's only so much of these that we can take before we, we mentally break. So it's like picking your mental battles somehow. Exactly, yeah. Um, there is a perfect amount of stress that humans need to perform. Mm-hmm. And we know this from our flying days is that, um, and from our flying human factors, uh, uh, theory that too little stimulation leads to underperformance, too much leads to underperformance. So there's a real sweet spot, and I think that's right in life as well. Mm. Um, we shouldn't try to micromanage. Don't try to care about things that we simply cannot change. Other people's attitudes to you is, is a big one, how they treat us, mm. um, especially with people that we care about, colleagues um, or, or, or friends, family. Um, they, they, they might be a little more important. Um, I, I guess uh, we, should, we should kind of care what people think about us, but, but accept the fact that we can't always change what those people think about us. So, so only give a fuck about things that you can change mm-hmm. um, and don't try to get too caught up on, on the small things. And on, on that note of don't try, that's uh, a big a big theme in the first chapter of Manson's book. Uh, we need to be as authentic as possible, to be as happy as possible. Um, don't try to be somebody that you're not. Uh, don't try to change what you can't. Just be what you feel you should be. Um, do what makes you truly happy, whether that really aligns with uh, what society may indicate that you should be doing or not. Um, things that we, we feel deep down that we should be doing with our lives uh, and things that we love doing, we, we, should, we should follow that. Um, and that not only applies for happiness, but, but also in business as well, actually. We should embrace challenge. Uh, this is a, a Buddhist teaching which rings true to me. Um, fill your life with good problems, accept that you will have challenges and problems, issues in your life, but try to fill your life with with those those good problems. Mm. Um, it's a bit like um, finding that optimum level of stress and stimulation. Yeah, in your life. Uh, and often we call these first world problems, right? They're kind of uh, problems that we may uh, find in our everyday situation, which in reality other people would look at in lesser circumstances and just go, what are you really complaining about? Mm. But to have these these good problems in our lives, such as, you know, I've, I've got to buy another investment property or I've got these challenges of, of getting maybe my, my kids through the normal day, you know, things like this can be stressful, but mm. um, they are challenges which we need to embrace because... Um, some people aren't necessarily given the same opportunities that we're given to even have these challenges in their lives. 
Yeah, I've been thinking a bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, I think a lot of people probably understand it really, but imagine that pyramid. At the bottom, you've got the fundamental things you need to survive, food, water, shelter, and you move up the pyramid. And as you satisfy those basic requirements, you reach the top. The peak of the pyramid is this area of, say, self-actualization. And once we've satisfied all of our more basic um, needs, then we can begin to think of ways of enhancing ourselves spiritually and, and emotionally and intellectually. And uh, I think that's where those first world problems live. They're in those top tiers of the, uh, the pyramids. I guess we could think about a lot of these problems and issues as a tax. All right, on any, on any good thing that we get out of life, there's always going to be a tax associated with it. Uh, we used to tax, talking about taxes financially, but um, even to, um, to, to be super successful, there, there's always a, a downside to, to things. If you're a successful business person, for instance, you're going to lose family time or you may have to put your health second and so on. We always have these trade-offs and, and certainly I like to view them as taxes. One other, other one that Manson uh, digs deep into is our value system. This is a big one that rings true to me and um, it's probably my biggest takeaway. He gives a great example of how he dug into his basic reasoning for why he was feeling a lack of reciprocation when he showed affection or made contact with his brother. Uh, whenever you feel negative thoughts of depression, anger, disappointment, or frustration, you've got to ask uh, why. Um, perhaps write that down, a, a one-line answer, but then answer the question and ask yourself why again. And he calls this a self-awareness onion where you just keep peeling back the layers to yourself mm-hmm. and asking yourself, but why do I feel that? But why do I feel that? And eventually, this is like a little kid, right? Just keep asking yourself, why in that you dig down into the basic underlying value as to, to why you think certain things, why you have certain frustrations, why you have these negative feelings about whatever is in your life, especially about people that are close to you or situations that you really do care about. Really digging deep into your value system and, and understanding a value system then allows you to change your value system, and this is really the crux of it, is to truly change yourself for the better. If you want to change yourself for the better, you have to understand yourself fully and totally. You need to be honest with yourself about um, what you reveal when you peel those layers back. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think most people don't give themselves the reflection time to dig deep within themselves. Perhaps they're too busy. Perhaps they just don't care perhaps they they're oblivious Mm. but I myself have always been able to reflect perhaps I've been uh, able to have the time in my life uh, those quiet periods during the day where I've been able to to think about why certain things happen or why I thought certain things to dig deep I've done a a bit of reading now and and listening to podcasts and so on that helps out a lot the education Mm. to start to understand as I said what makes me tick and therefore to understand and therefore be able to start to change and, and perhaps build habits etc to change that for the long term mm. but it's very hard yeah there's a level of detachment uh, that comes when you're 
as you're going through life, the ability to observe yourself and your behavior um, in a detached way. So you, you're kind of appraising how you're behaving in different contexts and going, well, that's interesting. Well, why am I behaving this way? Why am I feeling this way? And then being able to reflect and self-assess rather than just being this kind of automaton going through um, reacting, you you kind of debrief yourself on the mm. go or maybe later and, and try to identify times. I, I started this little journal um, last year, I think it was, and it's basically, I just add to it when stuff happens that I basically regret, really. I've called it um, times I should have been better. And uh, it'll be just a little experience that happened. Often it's customer service related because people piss me off. <laughs> so I might uh, walk away and think, you know what, I actually behaved like a real dick then. And think about why did I feel that way? Why did I behave that way? And how can I try and avoid that behavior from happening in the future? Generally, I, I don't <laughs> learn from it. But I try to do that. I think if you can take a moment to really think about times when you, you could have done a better job of life then that's at least a step on the path to becoming a better new version of yourself, maybe. I've just finished a leadership module in, uh, in some studies, and I think that is a very modern approach to leadership, is being humble enough to recognise that you're not perfect and it's a continuous self-improvement journey. Mm. And most people, particularly a lot of lot of leaders are too busy to to give themselves self-reflection time and I do wonder how many people really do this I mean you you say you do it and and I certainly do it but are there that many people who really do give themselves self-reflection time I mean I certainly know a lot of people close to me who who are too busy for it or just think it's a bit uh, a little bit unnecessary I guess it's something that you probably tend to do less of the older you get. So for instance, when you're younger and you're perhaps a trainee or an apprentice or a co-pilot or or in some position where your behavior and your um, conduct is constantly being um, appraised, you're always having to prove yourself. It's part of your life. You get used to having to reflect and so on. And then as you get older and more senior and less people question your behavior, you tend to stop thinking about how other people see you. You become more confident and whatever bad behaviours and so on you've developed probably become worse, more ingrained. So it's more difficult, I think, to step back when you're a bit older, a bit more experienced. But I think it's even more necessary. And and that's what I think what you're saying is that you tend to do that. But I'd probably argue that that's totally incorrect because especially out of these studies, uh, as I said, a very modern way to lead is is simply to be self-reflective, be humble enough to realize that you don't know it all, mm. that no one person can solve any problem. It's all about drawing in the resources of an entire team. And you should actually be going to other people, not, not just those who are more senior than you, but those who are colleagues or more junior, to ask, how did I do that? Or... Mm. How could I have done? How could you guide me to have done that better? Or are there any ways that I that I could do this job better in in the future? Mm. So although we tend to not do that as much as we get older, I think it's actually even more important. Yeah, yeah. The more we get into those those senior and um, more responsible positions. So do you think that uh, what Manson's presented here 
how much is it really unique? Is is he just uh, saying what we've all been thinking, or has he really is he hitting on something that is uh, quite a sort of a, a new way of approaching life? I don't think Manson's arguments are unique. Yet he presents the the theories in a, in a great way by telling stories. Um, he does synthesize. Uh, as I said earlier, a lot of philosophy and, and psychology from right across the past few thousand years, actually, in a, in a really easy-to-read way. So I think it's more the way that he writes and the way he presents the data that makes it truly different. But the stuff that he's saying is just hidden amongst you know writings by by philosophers, philosophers, etc. That we don't necessarily uh, ever get around to reading or, or hearing about. Mm. Yeah, he's distilled some really um, quite uh, old, I guess, nuggets of information in a, in down into sort of a modern vernacular and uh, in a fairly casual way. It's like reading a magazine. I listen to it as an audio book, which I think you did as well. Yeah. And uh, it's a compelling way to listen to it because it's funny. You know, it's almost like listening to a podcast. It's great. Yeah. I just don't think the average person simply has the time or ironically the motivation to read the multitude of books, to reflect, put mm. positive changes into place. People often look for a quick fix or a silver bullet approach mm. to their problems. Uh, in reality, a lot of people should have this huge amount of knowledge that the philosophers and, and psychologists across hundreds if not thousands of years have have um, had have put into into writing, but we just simply don't have don't have the resources to be able to take all that in. So mm-hmm. Manson simply takes it all and, and presents it in a really easy to read way, as we said, in a couple of hundred pages. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real key. Yeah, I'm a bit of a skeptic of self help in this sort of traditional sense, maybe the Eckhart Tolle kind of way that you read this babble and it tells you about your mystic energy fields and a load of crap like that. But I think what Manson does, perhaps it's just because me personally, I find these sort of concepts from philosophy and Stoicism so on particularly interesting. Uh, so maybe I'm a bit biased, but I like the to just be able to talk about life and why we behave the way we do and maybe some approaches to making it a bit easier um, that are just really pragmatic. They don't require any sort of invocation of uh, some sort of supernatural shit we can't see. There's no magic. It's just just take a good, long, hard look at yourself and have a think about what's really important and um, try and shed yourself with some of the crap that we build up around ourselves. So I like it because it's just kind of common sense uh, delivered in, a, in an easy to sort of digest format. You know? Correct. <laughs> I agree. I guess we'll sort of move off the book a little bit and talk more about your own experience in life. And I guess we can refer back to these types of topics as we go. I posed the question to you about where you see yourself on your journey through life and how perhaps you've felt you've evolved as a person. And I specifically asked, uh, was there a time you look back, you were happier than you are now, and why that might have been? Or if not, if you think you're happier now than you were in the past, then why that is the case? Good question. Um, I think when we're, when we're younger, we're a little more ignorant. Uh, we're carefree, 
and that might lead to a sense of happiness and we reflect on our younger years you know in our 20s and 30s when we're fit healthy we um, may not have much financial success at the time but we we, we, all, we, we don't always, need money as much, right? We all, we all, yeah, we all reflect on those times and think, geez, life was easy. We didn't have as many problems mm. and I had a whole future ahead of me. So it's hard to say whether I was happier back then because now with a great deal of, uh, deal more of responsibility, confidence in career, self, education of, uh, of what happiness truly is and what makes me happy, my own value system, it just means I have a lot more clarity about what could make me happy. And I do realize that that is very, very different to what it might have been when I was younger, when I was simply less educated about all of, all of this. So to answer your question, I may have been somewhat happier yet ignorant when I was younger, but now... I'm more uh, sure about what I need to do to go forward. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword because I realize how many weaknesses there are in perhaps my own personality to be able to get to where that happiness lies. But I think then it becomes a journey and you realize this is really not a destination. It's about the journey itself. And it's simply about moving towards a better place day by day. Now, moving and, on. And what is that better place? Yeah, it's different. I mean, different for, it, it depends for each person because happiness is really subjective, isn't it? Um, happiness for me is, the, the goalposts always change too. Um, happiness for me, I guess long-term, Hard one. Mm. I'll put it back on you. What does it mean for you? You can be happy from moment to moment. So it's kind of how do you really define happiness? And that's the whole challenge and what I'm sort of working my way through with this whole navigating life sort of subplot within this podcast is it's something I'll keep coming back to as I find better ways to answer that question and better questions to ask actually to define the problem. And I think happiness is, for me, it's about fulfillment. It's about because I don't know why I'm here and what the point of it all is. And I have a secret suspicion that there is no point. And that's a terrifying notion. But if that's the case, then I find it kind of very freeing to think, well, because there's no point, but I do have the ability to feel and be happy from one moment to the next. So that's all I can do, right? That's all life has to be about. If there's no cosmic reason for us to be here, then to me, happiness uh, or the point of life is to be as happy as you can. And as you say, you're 100% correct, those goalposts are going to shift. So you just have to make micro goals. And uh, as you have children, get married, there's going to be fairly grounding anchor points of happiness. You know, my family's healthy, I'm healthy, my children are happy and well cared for and have all the things they need, education, clothing, food, all the basic parts of Maslow's pyramid and then as we all move up you know we're fortunate to have the means to most of that stuff's taken care of and it probably always will be touch wood so then it, for me happiness becomes more about sharing my ideas with other people like this type of thing learning more and finding out just how narrow my perspective is I get real joy out of knowledge and learning and hearing 
other people's points of view. And as we were discussing last night about the more you read, you tackle a subject you weren't really familiar with. And it bristles you initially. You know, you're not aware of some deep topics and your first thoughts about them can be quite confronting. And then as you think about it and hear more and it sounds reasonable and suddenly you get sucked down this rabbit hole and you unlock these mysteries of the universe and human behavior and ways of looking at life. And that is where I start to find happiness. Um, so it's not about money or, I mean, yeah, of course I, I love it when I in a strong financial position for whatever reason, but next month suddenly all these bills come in I didn't expect and money just sucks the life out of you. So money is not where happiness is. We all know that. But there's joyous occasions when children are born and you get married. And there's also little things. I love it when you're in a communal setting, a party with friends, might be impromptu. And that moment when you just sit there going, I don't want this to end. You know, I know it's 10 o'clock at one in the morning, we're all going to be in bed. But there's that moment you just want to pause life because you're just happy, everyone's happy. And it's those little snapshots, I think. I try to be present in those moments and identify them because they don't happen that often. Uh, I find that I think as you get older, <laughs> less and less so. I think you've just summarized uh, the book by Manson quite well. A few of his key takeaways are don't look to leave your legacy on the world. Just look for sh the, the here and now and how to make a few people around you, your, your immediate friends and family, a little happier. Mm. Try to improve your lot from one day to the next. Make yourself that little bit better but don't try to look for the ultimate happiness so going back to the question what does that happiness mean i guess the real quest question is how can i make myself happy in the here and now and not look for that long-term happiness at all mm -hmm. sure we have to have our basic needs covered financial freedom is is wonderful um, it allows you to do some things that, that make you that little bit happier in the here and now. But realistically, yeah, money is not going to create that much long-term happiness. These are extrinsic motivators. We, we really need those intrinsic motivators, the meaning be behind what we do in our lives. Short-term happiness, friends and family directly around us, and trying not to think about things too much, take yourself too seriously or try to look for some ultimate endpoint. I just have to reach this point, and then I will be happy. Correct. We make happiness this conditional thing, uh, and that's what I've been sort of talking about before, that I want people to get away from that mode of thinking, that uh, happiness is this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, that yeah. you never get there. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, expectations, because I think that feeds into this idea as well. And I was intrigued when you told me once a few months back about how you're kind of living in an unknown area because, say, when you were younger, you, you couldn't conceive of kind of the life you're living now. So because you've already exceeded any expectations you had when you were younger, now now what? You had some goals and you achieved those and then some, and now it's like, well, the rest of the story is not written, so where to from here? Maybe you can talk to me a little bit, little bit about how Happiness is also about expectations or, or lack thereof and how you manage that yourself. Yeah, I remember that conversation. I'm surprised you remembered it so well and that it struck a chord within you. I think what I was getting at was that the goals and direction that I had 
for a lot of my life until now was based on perhaps what society or my family, particularly my parents, put upon me. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that when we're younger, we don't really know what we want to do with our lives. We have the, the subconscious feeling of, of, okay, we default to what our upbringing entails or what our parents might have wanted us to do. And certainly I didn't become a doctor or a lawyer like my parent, parents probably wanted. Mm. Um, but I am comfortable with the fact that I have made them proud and that I've reached a point where the tide turns and they can no longer give you as much education and financial freedom as possibly you can offer them. And it's a really nice position to be in uh, because now you can start to give back to everything that they gave you. But certainly what I was referring to when I said that a, a while back was that I'd reached the, the goals that they had pre presented for me as, as I grew up that initially became my own goals and values. That propelled me along into my career and in my career, as you know, we, we move towards a certain point which generally ends with being in command of an aircraft. It's nice to get there. You kind of sit there at the top of that pyramid for a little while. We might call it a couple of years. Mm. And then you start to think, you know, is this it? Or should I come up with a new set of goals? And we do. I mean, our goalposts do move along the way. And certainly, I now have many more goals, which might not sit exactly in our primary career. They're kind of off to the side that I can build alongside my career, uh, as well as with my family and things that have come up along the way that, that I've added on to. But on self-reflection, I do give credit to the fact that I wanted to get to a certain point. I, at one time when I was younger, didn't even know if I'd get there at all. Mm. And I did. And it's kind of like, what now? So, yeah, we just simply have to realize that we, we come up with new goals and values along the way and we, we work towards new ones. And that's the whole part of the journey that we've been talking about towards this subjective happiness that, we, that, that the whole conversation's about. Mm. When I was talking about the book, The Happiness Curve, <clears throat> where Jonathan Ruck talks about how you've reached this point of realization, like you hit a slump where you realize you're not going to achieve half the things that you wanted to, and then you eventually come to the realization that it doesn't matter, and you, happiness is not about those things. But we're almost describing with you know being fortunate to do some cool things in our careers and, and achieved a couple of milestones. It's almost like, well, I did do those things. Now what? what what's next? And I've always been someone who's been goal-driven. I, I like to have something I'm working towards that gives me a sense of purpose in my life and just to be sort of wandering around aimlessly uh, leaves me with an unsettled feeling and, and I actually tend to fall off the path quite a bit if I don't have something to focus my energy on. So it's perhaps also a reason that I've come to do this podcast is it, it's a way of consolidating some threads of thoughts that I've had as I find myself in a similar place sort of career-wise at least where made it, shall we say, without um, going too far with it. It's like what else? What else does life have to offer? And what else can I offer life? What can I give back? I, I like that idea of paying it forward. And it's not about me anymore. You know, I've sucked everything out of life. And now how can I start to give it back? I think we need to also realize that 
the goals can shift. Some people don't ever re realize or come in, come to the goals that they set for themselves when they were younger. And that can be a real disappointment for some people. Uh, we do get sidetracked. We do move off in tangents with our lives. And I know this from a business sense as well, is that you do set initial goals for far down the track and they guide you, but you need to ensure that you still have the flexibility within your, within your own mind for those goals to shift off to the side and move on a tangent mm. because markets change. As with ourselves, life changes, the world changes as we move along. Sometimes those goals don't mean as much as they used to or they're not relevant anymore. So we need to maintain that bit of cognitive flexibility and not be so hardline. I think we're very fortunate that we did get to where we wanted to get to. Well, maybe we didn't. You know, when I was uh, learning to fly, everybody wanted to be an airline pilot, right? So mm -hmm. for me, sitting back in Sydney, it was about being a Qantas captain or, or some sort of airline captain and that, mm. yeah, has not panned out for me. But I'm perfectly happy with that because, again, those goals shifted sideways a little bit and I've gotten even more happiness out of what we do now. And certainly off to the side of that, there's a few other parts of my life that I could have never really realized or perhaps were not even within my, my frame of mind when I was younger, which popped up and I had the flexibility to move into those. So we do need to be goal-driven, but we also need to keep part of our, our mental space uh, flexible to be able to for those to shift and not be too disappointed if we don't actually get to that finite goal at the end of the day. When we make our happiness conditional on reaching certain points or goals, we can potentially close ourselves off to other opportunities. You don't know what you don't know. If you're not open-minded enough to new paths and new directions, you may never reach levels of happiness that you could otherwise if, if you were so narrow and your thinking and, and made your happiness conditional on these goals you've created for yourself, um, which are too fixed. So that's a I think I'm probably guilty of uh, being very uh, narrow with my way of thinking. My, my wife would definitely agree with the fact that I'm not very uh, open to experiencing new things or moving into... Um, activities which I'm, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do well at or I don't think I'll enjoy so I never really start and she's very good with that she's got a very open personality to be able to take this on so it's something I'm working on well, she and took you on so she must exactly <laughs> exactly but I, I think uh, I like the 80 20 rule and it works in a number of ways the 80 20 rule but the way I like to think about it is that 80% of the time you've got to be working strongly towards those goals that you have, but leave 20% of your time or your your cognitive capability towards whatever comes up, experiencing new things, doing things that, that you don't really think are, are, are necessary to you, but they might make other people happy or that are not really in your current goal structure, but still you might enjoy. Um, so that's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. Just, just leave a bit of space within yourself, say 20% to experience, experience new things mm -hmm. and who knows, you might be able to turn it into a new passion, possibly a new business, or you might meet some new people which springboard into, into 
other things mm. which can be super beneficial and in fact might lead back to you moving on a tangent with your life but also being even happier Ultimately, back to the su- yeah. back to the subject tell me about a time in your life when you failed and how did you cope with it starting to sound like an airline interview it's a very uh, common well i'm not giving you a job question isn't it uh, tell me a time when you failed about a time when you failed look um i like to bring this back to the physical training aspect a program that i am qualified for and now train under uh, you know, for about the last year and a half is the conjugate method and the way it works is that um, we rotate around the exercises that we do so we never quite adapt to to the one style of exercise the other thing is that um, in the physical training point of view I make I now ensure that every week I fail and this is a little different to how I might have done things for the last 15 to 20 years of physical training sometimes we train to the point where we are pretty comfortable and we can handle the load but we don't go to that point of failure. When I did this qualification last year, it taught me that from a physical sense, failing is important because until you fail, you never really know how far you can go. You never really know if you're improving because you never measure that metric of this is what I've got in me uh, at the present time, which is better or worse than than previously. So it is important that we fail, um, and we fail often. Uh, I try to take that into my, uh, into my, my, into a a psychological side of things, um, rather than just physical as well. So I do also ensure that I, that I fail in my own life by trying new things and being happy to accept failure. So I'm going to keep it fairly general there and just say I try to fail in a lot of things and be comfortable with that Mm. each and every week. In terms of physical training, once you find your limit, you have a kind of a yardstick with which to measure improvement and maybe you see improvements just by gradually increasing right up to that limit. How do you transfer that same lesson then into um, other aspects of your life? We're all going to fail all the time for different reasons. Are you learning what you're not good at or how to behave better or differently? What works, what doesn't? What sort of lessons do you take from failure in that more sort of um, pragmatic life? You just keep a positive approach to failure. Um, you've got to realise that as part of the process that without failure, you don't, you don't grow. So, so it's a conditioning mechanism. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So um, we need to be prepared to fail in, in many things to be able to grow. Uh, we need to be able to be confident and put ourselves into situations where we know we're uncomfortable and may not succeed. But the fact that we fail will ensure that we learn. As in a physical sense, failing does mean that you, it's at that point of failure that your body says, okay, I didn't handle it, but I'm now going to grow to adapt to that new load so that in the future I, I will be able to handle it. Uh, it's very important from not a phys- just a physical sense, but also a mental or cognitive sense as well. Mm. So is that uh, something you've developed or you're applying also because you mentioned before that maybe a weakness you see in yourself 
is that you won't take on things that you are fearful that you might not succeed at or you could fail at and that potentially holds you back from discovering other aspects or new areas in life which could lead you to more happiness so you're applying that um, logic or that mentality to um, embrace failure so that you can push into new areas. Yeah, don't get me wrong, it's never easy to keep failing, mm. right? It takes a strong personality to be comfortable with continual failure. Uh, failing is, is never really comfortable. So it's something I force upon myself to try to be, to consciously, again, coming back to that 80-20 rule of leaving that 20% of mm. me to be able to fail, be comfortable with that, but then maybe fall back onto what I'm good at Justify it just to give myself the comfort that I'm still doing okay, mm. so that then I can fail forward again. Mm. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but um, it's something you've got to try to create a habit of and embrace. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, David Goggins, who's a um, ex US Navy SEAL who uh, is an endurance athlete, and he's got some pretty hardcore philosophies about this stuff. And he, he talks about rather than doubling down on your strengths, to double down on your weaknesses. Because um, naturally we tend to focus on the things we know we're good at because it does feel good to succeed and be the best or be good at something. Whereas we should really be looking at the areas that we're not good at and focusing on those and getting comfortable with failure and improving those things as well. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's an interesting Yeah, I, again, I'm going to put it back into a physical sense because this is what I know really well and can, can visualize is that I, I view the body um, in total and in sections as a chain. So we have the lower body or the upper body chain. And that chain um, depends upon a number of uh, muscular interactions or joints to be able to produce strength. Just co like cognitively, we, we rely on many processes and just, um, that make up a, a good decision to be able to create a strong chain. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to certainly pick out our weaknesses and work on those weaknesses. Again, it comes down to self-reflection of being able to see your weaknesses. As a trainer, I try to do that physically with people and try to be frank with them, yet supportive, and highlight their weaknesses simply from the point of view that if you attack your weaknesses, then the entire chain is going to get stronger. So continually, you just need to work on things that you're poor at to be able to bring up an entire chain, and then something else will be weaker, and you improve that and prop it up to, to improve the chain. Something else will then stand out different altogether, and you prop that up, and eventually the whole chain keeps rising, getting stronger and stronger, and I try to put that back into a mental sense as well of whether it be decision-making or, or just my personality in general, just pick the weaknesses, try to improve it. The whole chain will pick up. Another weakness will stand out. Pick that up, and, and mm -hmm. eventually, at the end of the day, you're just getting stronger and stronger. makes me think a little bit about compensation. So when we have weaknesses, we tend to compensate for them by using other areas. And say, in the physical sense, you can cause injury or you want to avoid a something a weaker area or something that is a bit sore or tender and you end up working the wrong muscle groups and cause yourself a worse injury and maybe um, applying that to other areas of life if you do just focus on the things that you're good at all the time you end up overcompensating for the areas you're not so good at and that can kind of 
put your personality or, or your attitudes a little bit out of, out of whack. Yeah, I agree. And you don't grow. Mm. Good stuff. How do you perceive yourself as this kind of constant in life? When you look back, how much do you think you've grown or changed as a person and, and how much potential do we have for that? It's a constant learning process, isn't it? Uh, the more you learn, the, the more you realize there are things to change and areas which you want to work on. It becomes such a snowball in that when you're younger, you don't know what your weaknesses are or where the holes are within within your personality or, or even physically. The more you go on, if you do spend the time to educate yourself, it just snowballs into a multitude of areas that you need to improve upon and create habits for. So I think um, it's nice to not be ignorant anymore, but you've got to also realize that you're probably never going to be perfect nor get to where you expect to get to, where every box is ticked off and your, your life is now fully complete. But in saying that, you want to be on your deathbed thinking that you've given the best chance at, at everything, mm-hmm. at achieving as much as you could have achieved without much regret. Very good. Well, thanks for your thoughts uh, on the topic. I'm sure we'll have more to discuss and come back to this in the future. Have you got anything else to add before we wrap it up? I think that's pretty good. Thanks, Dave. Nice. Appreciate the discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now or on our website, theheranow2017.com. I'd love to hear from you about this episode or any other topics. You can reach me through the pages or by email at emailtheheranow at gmail.com. That's email the here and now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.